This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Baraschetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. Shortly after half past 12 today, after checking in with news headlines and across to the Bureau of Meteorology, the state government appears to be backing away from plans to fix a major water resource. This is in the southwest of the state, and I'm talking about Wellington Dam. It is WA's biggest surface water resource. Uh, apart from the Ord River scheme. The details of that shortly for you. And also, for the first time since listing on the Australian Stock Exchange back in 2015, the WA-based agribusiness Wellard has turned a profit. It's only $200,000, but it's in the black, and I guess that is something to celebrate. Shortly hearing from the Executive Chairman, John Klepek. This is the Country Hour, 6 past 12. Well, with just days until the official start of the critical spring period, the Bureau of Meteorology has revealed its latest climate outlook. And while there's some good news for the eastern states, the BOM's spring outlook for WA is not quite as optimistic. It's tipping average to drier than average conditions for most of the state over the next three months. So with a snapshot of what the bomb expects, here's Dr Andrew Watkins. For much of the eastern two-thirds of Australia, the chances are fairly high that we'll have above-average rainfall. But over in the west there, look, unfortunately, Western Australia, no strong swing in the odds for much of the state, except down in the southeast, which is a good sign, being quite dry in those areas recently. a good chance of getting above-average rainfall. In terms of temperatures... Maximum temperatures, daytime temperatures, generally looking quite warm across northern Australia. Also in uh, Tasmania and parts of southern Victoria, but much of the rich rest of the country, not a strong swing in the odds, so a little bit close to average, possibly cool and average in parts. The Bureau recently upgraded its prediction of a La Nina. When do you think this wet weather pattern could emerge? We've certainly started to see it emerge in New South Wales and you know, other parts of the Murray-Darling Basin as well already. Uh, in actual fact, uh, August was Australia's uh, wettest August since 2016, actually wettest winter month since 2016. So we're starting to see some of those patterns emerge. At the moment, though, we're at a La Nina alert, and that means there's about a 70% chance of La Nina locking in this year. That's about three times the normal chance. If it does lock in, that would mean that we're likely to get wetter than normal conditions through the spring and possibly into the summer as well. Is that for both the East Coast and the West Coast? How does it affect those two areas differently? Well, typically La Nina affects northern Australia, central Australia and eastern Australia, it has less impact in the southwest of the continent. So unfortunately, Western Australia tends to miss out a little bit from La Nina. But one of the good signs at the moment is we're seeing some changes in the Indian Ocean as well. There is some chance of what we call a negative Indian Ocean dipole. And that really just means warmer water near, uh, near Western Australia, cooler water off Africa, and uh, the clouds like to form where the warmer water is. So hopefully, well, there is still some chance that that pattern will form and lock in through until the start of summer. That might bring a little more rainfall to WA, but at the moment, the odds are 
somewhere around average, so for more average rainfall for Western Australia, wetter in the east. At the start of winter, there was a forecast for an above average winter forecast for WA. This didn't eventuate. And some people have been very critical of BOM for forecasting, or, you know, for putting those ideas in people's heads, I suppose. Why were these forecast way back then so far out? Well, this is one of the, the issues with seasonal forecasting that it's probabilistic and we're giving people the odds of it being above average. The odds were fairly good and I'm, I'm uh, happy to say that, but uh, of course it doesn't guarantee that it's going to happen and that's unfortunately the difference between a climate outlook, which is probabilistic, and a weather forecast that really says you are going to get a certain amount of rain. And what happened? Basically, the Indian Ocean didn't play ball. And I must say, it wasn't just the Bureau. All the models we look at from around the world were suggesting that the Indian Ocean would warm up in the eastern Indian Ocean, supply a lot of moisture into WA and through into the southeast. Now, we had some pretty unusual circumstances with some unusual winds from the south, and we also had a couple of tropical cyclones quite late in the season that stirred up the oceans and stopped that eastern Indian Ocean warming up as we would have expected. And hence, we've really had to wait until now to start seeing those patterns over there uh, to the west of Australia. But now we're coming into spring. The odds are looking a bit better, uh, at least for the eastern states and Victoria getting that rainfall this time, the odds are fairly high. And at this time of year, we have some pretty good accuracy historically as well. So are these spring uh, forecasts more reliable than those ones earlier in the year? Well, when we go back and look at how the model has performed in the past, certainly spring is a key time for skill or accuracy. So we get our highest accuracy in the spring and we get lower accuracy around sort of the late summer, early autumn stage. Head of Climate Operations, Dr Andrew Watkins at the Bureau of Meteorology talking about the spring outlook, which also predicts a higher chance of exceeding medium maximum temperatures in the northeast and higher than average temperatures are forecast across the whole state over spring. If you want to read more about it, just search BOM Forecast ABC. There's an article online for you right now. ABC WA, 11 past 12. Well, for the first time since listing on the ASX in 2015, the WA-based agribusiness Wellard has recorded a modest full-year profit of $0.2 million. So that's $200,000. The former livestock exporter is now focused on being a livestock vessel charter business, and the company says that business strategy has been a key part of the financial turnaround. John Klepek is Wellard's executive chairman. John, is the $200,000 profit really cause for celebration? Yes, look, admittedly it is a small profit, but it's a profit nevertheless. Um, we, anyone would much rather be in a position of being in the black than um, in the red as we have been the last two years um, Forty-eight million uh, odd loss last year, and uh, I think it, the yeah, previous year was thirty-six, uh, around the thirty-six million dollar mark. So, being in a uh, in the black is definitely where we want to be. Um, but it's uh, far from mission accomplished. Um, that is not an acceptable return 
for the on the assets that we have for our shareholders. So our focus going forward is is. Uh, 100% about getting that uh, to a level that is an acceptable return. What do, you, so, what do you pinpoint as the main reasons for the improvement, just clawing your way back into the black? Um, ship utilisation is, is the key. Previous years we had trading some trading losses as well, some uh, um, bad um, shipments in um, South America to Turkey, which uh, heavily impacted uh, on the bottom line. Uh, and ship utilisation, um, it's, uh, we've been openly uh, said that the, the Shearer and hence we've um, sold the Shearer. The fleet that we had was underutilised. The Shearer uh, was at uh, drifting um, from the Christmas to it started moving again September, um, September last year. So for a period of nine months of last calendar year, um, it wasn't moving at all. And when you have, um, you know, a large ship, of that size, 23,000 square metres, that is not earning any income at all and has a, a large debt against it. Um, and you just can't uh, turn these things off. There's still an operating cost to, to keep the ship ship afloat. So the key to the uh, um, improvement is the, um, the ship utilisation. And this year, um, or currently, and um, this calendar year, the Drover, the Ute and their swagmen have all been um, well utilised and hence have contributed to a positive impact on the on the financials. Uh, in addition to the other point, uh, we have um, taken a, a huge amount of cost out of the business. The cost out program, we've reduced it down this year, just gone to 11 million. It was double that uh, the previous financial year uh, and triple that the year before. So um, that is considerably um, improves things as well. And the third element is the finance costs. Now that the Shearer has sold and we sold the Swagman as well, a net debt of um, just under $9 million uh, gives a vastly different result on the uh, finance costs. How healthy is the business then or how solid is the business when you did have to get rid of some really big assets to get yourself into this position with the sale of the Ocean Shearer, as you said, for $53 US million and then the sale and leaseback of the MV Ocean Swagman for US $22 million. I mean, there'd be something wrong if you couldn't manage a profit after selling assets like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair fair comment. And that's why we are focused on on now. Now we've um, stabilised the balance sheet. The balance sheet restructure is completed. Um, we have, you know, a net debt of $8.9 million, $16 million, uh, Australian uh, cash at the end of 30th of June. Yes, um, there are no excuses going forward to not return a, a reasonable um, return on the assets. Um, if you can't, then you have to look at other alternatives. So, yeah, we're well positioned financially. There is nothing financially that impedes our ability to uh, operate. Well, off the back of the result that you're reporting with that $0.2 million profit, the share price is up 17%, uh, trading as high as 58 cents a share. Uh, that's far from when the company first listed back in 2015 with $1.39. What's the plan to try and, um, I, I'm assuming you want to get that um, share price up for your shareholders? Yeah, well, the, the share price is a reflection of the underlying earnings of the company. When you lose $48 million and $36 million uh, and you have serious problems uh, with um, um, debt, etc., no one's going to be uh, rushing to buy your shares. So um, if we present a, uh, a robust plan and deliver on those, those results, the share price will, will return to levels um, uh, commensurate with the um, base underlying earnings. On the country, are catching up with John Klepak, who is from the company Wellard. He's the executive chairman with the company and just acknowledging the fact that the company's turned this $0.2 million 
profit. Uh, reporting to the ASX in the last 24 hours. The Federal Court of Australia recently ruled in favour of class action plaintiffs in legal action against the then Federal Agriculture Minister Joe Ludwig's decision to ban the live export of cattle to Indonesia in 2011. Well, as a member of that class, what are you expecting to get out of that in terms of compensation? Well, at this stage, it's unclear what the quantum will be. Yes, we are a member of the class, so uh, we will be uh, um, putting a claim forward. Um, exactly what that would be, uh, it's early days, so I wouldn't like to speculate other than it's, uh, it's going to be a positive, not a negative. Also, looking forward then, the current outlook, I mean, it, it does look like a little bit of a, a mixed bag, John Klepek. Can you explain some of the challenges and some of the, the high points to look forward to from this point on? Yeah, um, that's a good uh, summary, a mixed bag. Uh, I'll use that <laughs> later on if anyone asks a question. Uh, it is a mixed bag. Um, there's uh, some very good points and there's also some areas where uh, it's going to be uh, very challenging as well. Um, um, starting with the, the positive points, the China breeder market is very strong, both on dairy and um, cattle. And that's from a, it has been to date from Australia, but it is shifting a bit into New Zealand. And also, we just uh, we're just about to um, the ship's just skirting around the typhoon that's uh, um, uh, hitting um, the coast of uh, China. So we've been delayed a couple of days getting into the port, but we just completed a shipment of breeding cattle from Chile um, to China, which was uh, is, is an outstanding result. Uh, the mortality is on that are extremely low uh, for such a long long distance, and the uh, and I'm seeing photos of the um, the stock on board and they're in outstanding condition. So there's positives there. Uh, how long uh, we expect that market to continue for the foreseeable future, um, uh, it's very difficult to get a um, uh, how long, how many years that will go for, but there's no signs of it stopping um, anytime soon. And, and for this first quarter of this year, our ships have been um, um, heavily utilised on that trade. The base market for the company uh, is, uh, is will still be the same and and uh, remain in that space for a long time to come uh, is the Indonesian feeder market and also the Vietnam slaughter market. Both are very strong. Uh, the demand is there. The headwind that we face in those both those markets uh, are the underlying price of Australian beef, uh, which is at record highs uh, globally at the moment. And because of the, as everyone's aware, the restocking, et cetera, won't go into it. You know, we're down to record lows. There will be a less number of um, cattle uh, to be exported overseas, exactly what that number is. Um, you know, you can have 10 people give it uh, uh, 10 different forecasts, but it will be less than that, what it has been, but there will be cattle that will still go. The market is not, can't accommodate uh, high prices for an extended period. So there will have to be some fluctuations because, they're, you know, that they are the natural markets for the cattle from the north of Australia. Um, so the volumes will contract a bit uh, on, on in that area. The other area is Turkey. Turkey is open again. However, they're only uh, issuing um, import permits for two, 3,000 head type shipments. Um, the larger shipments of 10,000 plus head have not occurred to date. Uh, when that does occur, that will be uh, a large market. It's only two years ago that Turkey was importing over a million head of cattle a year, um, which is now a, a down to a trickle. So if that market reopens, that will take a lot of uh, the capacity of shipping out. The other outlook, um, it's not a short-term outlook, but medium-long-term outlook, you know, it's hard not to be super bullish on uh, the sheep trade from Australia, providing we can generate, uh, grow the sheep out um, in Australia. The numbers are there. Um, the export to the Middle East 
you know, you, you can pick whatever number you want, upwards of five million to five, somewhere between five and ten million a year is that market, and we're down to less than a million. The reality is, though, that the the herd is at, uh, or the flock is at. Um, um, the lowest level it's been in decades uh, and that will take time to rebuild and will take incentives for farmers or different type of systems to generate the, the numbers there. But long, medium, long term, um, that is an area that uh, I, for one, uh, am super bullish um, on sheep into the Middle East into the future. John Clebeck, great to have you on the Country Hour. Thank you. Thank you. John Klebeck is the Executive Chairman of the Agribusiness Wellard. Interesting final point there about the potential of the sheep exports into the Middle East and John telling you that we can basically pick your own number, upwards of sort of 10 million head of sheep. Now that is the demand coming out of the Middle East and that trade set to reopen, what, mid-September isn't it? I think we'll spend a little time talking about that, especially with the flock size at the moment, and might just sort of plan something a little down the track here on the Country Hour to discuss that in some more detail. 22 past 12, ABC WA, you are tuned in to the Country Hour. The US company behind what's going to be WA's biggest lithium refinery is about to start recruiting workers, but nowhere near as many as first planned. Albemarle had planned to take on about 500 workers for its lithium refinery near Bunbury, but that figure has been scaled back to 300 at most. Albemarle site director Daniel O'Shea says the reason is demand for lithium has dropped and so the plant build has been delayed until late next year. So if you, if you remember back originally when the site was announced, we Albemarle was actually looking at building a refinery plant on the site. So as part of the change in the, the global outlook at li- on lithium, the, the company made a decision to pull that back to, to uh, two refinery plants. So the original intent was 500 for three, and now we're talking just over 300 for uh, two of the, of the processing plants. Right, so there is actually no plan at the moment to go to those 500 anticipated jobs with the extra plant. No, not at the moment, and and again, that depends. The the site is sized for up to five processing plants if required. Albemarle Site Director Daniel O'Shea with Jackie Lynch talking about their initial recruitment phase. And he says ideally they'd like to hire locals that they can train. And if you'd like more detail on what range of jobs might be on offer at Albemarle's Bunbury Lithium Refinery site, just check the story online and there's a link for you on the ABC Southwest Facebook page. This is The Country Hour, 23 past 12. News headlines and across to the Bureau of Meteorology to check out conditions right across Western Australia and also see what might be in that front that's on its way. I think it's sort of into Sunday, Monday. The Bureau will tell you more shortly. Pastoral leaseholders in Western Australia's north are starting to get quite annoyed about unimproved value increases. As James Liveris explains, pastoralists are now being asked to pay much higher rates to their local shires. The disapproval for unimproved valuations for pastoral leases is widespread. Between the Pilbara and Kimberley alone, a record number of objections have been submitted to the WA Value General, who sets the value. And basically from there, a local shire takes a percentage of the unimproved value per annum. But for some in the northwest, their property value increased as high as 375% last year. 
Emma White leads the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association. She says the increased rates are becoming problematic. Even though we've got a record number of objections in against the unimproved valuations for past releases, so about 65 um, across the Kimberley and Pilbara, and that holds your pastoral rent on hold at the old rate until such time as the objections sorted out, it's the opposite for shire rate. So in the worst case example, Shire of Derby, West Kimberley, have actually increased the rates year on year over 300% in some examples I've seen, such that the rates the pastoralists pay is actually almost four times what their pastoral rent would be. So I guess we just ask for a, a bit of common sense. People are quite surprised when we explain to them these issues. And I, I'm not sure council, when they've made this decision, or the Shire officers for that matter, have actually fully understood the bigger picture around how this very untoward system with unimproved land valuations of pastoral leases works in Western Australia and that it's highly problematic. And, and they're potentially in a position where they're going to have to refund lots of money. So my question is, have they actually planned for that? Because what we know is where objections are lodged against unimproved values, it pretty much does result in a reduction in the unimproved valuation. Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association CEO, Emma White. Now, she's concerned how the shires will pay the money back if the objections are resolved in favour of the pastoralists. But Shire of Derby West Kimberley President Jeff Hirawa says his shire hasn't increased its rates. We have decreased the rates. It's the state government's valuations that have increased the yield. Depends on what you say by increasing the rates. The rates have been significantly dropped in the uh, rate per dollar. So we're the ones that are left holding the can from the state government. We're the ones that still have to service these roads. So it puts immense pressure on our local government in particular because we do have a a significant number of stations that we service. We've got 1,800 kilometres of roads that have to be serviced by our shire and we do have a low rate base as opposed to other areas. So we are caught between a rock and a hard place. We did not want to increase the rates, so we voted not to, to try and help out. However, we are caught between the state government increasing the valuations and therefore um, triggering the formula that allows local government to calculate their rate per dollar. Jeff says the Shire has planned for the objections to come back in favour of the pastoralists, which could cost them about $1.5 million. But in the case for the Bunabar Dalangari Aboriginal Corporation, they own three pastoral leases within the Derby West Kimberley Shire, and with rates still payable, Director Joe Ross says they're almost too great to overcome. Well, ours have jumped 375% from $46,252.76 based on a you know an improved unimproved value of $670,200 up to uh, $173,318.93 per annum. You know, that that's just appalling behaviour by the Shire of Derby West Kimberley. You know, we just want the Shire of Derby West Kimberley to grow a heart, actually, and be like Broome and East Kimberley, where they've, they've started off on a 20% increase, and my understanding is they're going to ratchet that up over three years. And for poor battling uh, properties and uh, uh, native title bodies like ours that are trying to improve our lot, uh, we need those sort of concessions. You know, we're not Kerry Stokes or uh, Andrew Forrest or, you know, Gina Reinhart, these big multi-billionaires that own the, our surrounding properties. 
And, you know, really, this is a miserable council, a miserable council that has no feelings for people trying their best out in rural Australia, especially in this environment where we're also very nervous and conscious of uh, the devastation of what COVID's been doing to our industry and, uh, and the national industry. Boonabar, Darwin Gary, Aboriginal Corporation leader Joe Ross ending that report from James Liveris. 29 past 12, the Department of Mines, Industry, Regulation and Safety is investigating three separate cases where workers were exposed to higher than normal levels of mercury at Kalgoorlie's Super Pit gold mine. Now, the incidents allegedly involved mercury at the mine's Fimiston Processing Plant and the safety regulator is conducting an audit of the gold room. Chronic exposure to mercury vapour can affect the central nervous system and kidneys. The incidents allegedly occurred after 2018, but before Australian miners Northern Star Resources and Saracen Mineral Holdings took over ownership of the super pit. Uh, You remember that was a combined $2.2 billion acquisition last year. The mine owners have been contacted for comment. This is the Country Hour, half past 12, and Jonathan Beale here with an update from the newsroom. Thanks, Belinda. The Australian man who massacred 51 people at two Christchurch mosques will spend the rest of his life in jail. The judge handed Brenton Tarrant New Zealand's first ever life prison sentence with no possibility of parole. Justice Cameron Mander said the 29-year-old appeared neither contrite nor ashamed. He said Tarrant's actions were brutal, beyond callous and inhuman. The Shadow Defence Minister, Richard Marles, says it's important the Commonwealth manages official Australian engagements with other countries. The government's set to introduce new laws to Parliament which are designed to give the Foreign Minister power to veto existing and future deals state governments, councils and universities have with foreign governments. If passed, the Commonwealth will consider cancelling agreements it believes are against Australia's national interest. And Western Australia has recorded no new cases of COVID-19 overnight. The state has seven active cases. More news coming up, Belinda, at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you for that 29 to 1. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Shortly, details of the state government are appearing to be backing away from plans to fix a major water resource in the southwest of the state, talking about Wellington Dam. On the text, it says, just typical, the idea of desalinating the Wellington Dam water so that it was suitable for horticulture was former Water Minister Mia Davies' proposal as part of the Water for Food project. Even more critical, it's done now as a water supply for the parched areas of the Great Southern. Typical of Labor government that has no idea or care factor of anything outside of the metro area to can the idea. Also, the water minister's ego can't allow himself to support any of Mia's ideas. Details of that story shortly. You can have your say too on the text 0448 922 604. And do not go anywhere because shortly you are going to meet a real character. His name is Ricky Wilson, and recently he spent 15 weeks on an NT cattle station without seeing a single person. I didn't get lonely at all. Like, you realise you are who you are. You don't have to worry about what you wear, what you... You know, I just ate when I was hungry and slept when I was tired. felt amazing. 
like it, the soul was singing, the soul. Do not miss being introduced to Ricky Wilson. He's not far away for you. First, though, off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Matt Boderhoven is on deck this afternoon. Matt, how's it looking in the Southwest Land Division and any detail that you can provide on the front that's on its way over the next few days or so? Yeah, we've got a couple of fronts coming up. Uh, the first one is on Friday, so it'll get to us, uh, get to the lower west coast um, during the late afternoon and evening. So we'll see showers develop in the southwest district uh, during the day and, and extend to areas southwest line during Bay to Brimmer Bay by midnight. Uh, rainfall wise, could see five millimetres around the southwest cape and the uh, western uh, south coast there, three millimetres in the remainder of the southwest district and around up to two millimetres in the lower west and the south coastal, only up to one millimetre sort of in the western parts of the Great Southern. Uh, just ahead of that cold front though, there'll be some pretty warm temperatures, especially over eastern parts of the southwest land division. So we could see temperatures up around 30 or 32 through the eastern parts of the central wheat belt and eastern parts of the, the Great Southern there on Friday. Um, on Saturday, that cold front will weaken uh, fairly quickly and uh, contract south of the state. So very early we'll see showers, southwest line, Jolton to Ravensthorpe to Islight Bay. Uh, but they'll contract to the south coast in the morning and then ease uh, during the day. Rainfall-wise, we won't see much, only uh, maybe up to a millimetre sort of uh, in part, inland parts uh, in the Great Southern there and even in the lower west and the southwest. Uh, but a little bit of rainfall around the south coast, so it could be maybe uh, up to seven millimetres around Albany and two or three around Esperance Coast there. Uh, on Sunday, a ridge of high pressure will develop uh, near the south coast and a high pressure system will move into the bite. Mostly sunny conditions uh, throughout the uh, southwest land division. There will be a slight chance of frost around uh, the western parts, the southwestern parts of the Great Southern and the adjacent uh, southwest district. Then into Monday, a strong cold front uh, will approach the, the west coast there and by evening it should be on the capes. So we'll see showers develop southwest line Perth to Albany um, during the afternoon and late evening. Uh, Rainfall-wise, uh, might get up to 10 millimetres around the the capes, and maybe uh, if it depending on the time in the front, there's a little bit of uncertainty there, uh, but you could see five millimetres in them parts of the southwest and uh, lower west coast. But then into Tuesday, that cold front will move through, so. It's looking fairly promising. It's uh, promising to get into the eastern parts of the southwest land division there on Tuesday and could see up to five millimetres in the eastern parts of the Great Southern and uh, two or three millimetres in the eastern part of the central wheat belt. Around the southwest, uh, 10 or 15 millimetres and around the lower west, uh, up to 10 or 15 millimetres as well. So it's looking uh, fairly promising. So hopefully uh, that uh, lives up to expectations there. All right. And in northern and eastern parts, activity? Not a great deal. A little bit of uh, with that surface trough uh, lying through um, the western parts of the state there on Friday. It'll move eastwards but uh, on the east side of that uh, trough will be some fairly hot conditions. We could see a couple temperature records broken again. Uh, fire dangers will be up through the Gascoigne and through the uh, northern, uh, through the inland Kimberley. Uh, then into Saturday, that trough will continue eastwards and might see some fire dangers up through the Eucla and the south interior, again through the Kimberley and some hot conditions in the Pilbara. Uh, showers could uh, sneak around to the far west Eucla coast if we're lucky. 
there on Saturday, um, but then on Sunday it should be fairly, most, you know, mostly sunny conditions throughout the state there and maybe a little bit hot over western parts of the Pilbara. Uh, and Monday the hot temperatures will start developing again as that surface trough uh, develops uh, over western parts of the state and we'll see the fire dangers up through the Gascoigne and the Kimberley again. Any warnings this afternoon then, Matt? Just have a fire weather warning for the North Kimberley coast and the Kimberley inland. Great, thank you for that. 23 to 1 here on the Country Hour. In the last 24 hours, there was no rain at all for the majority of the state. Just a few isolated showers in the southwest. For example, Margaret River, 3, Walpole Forestry, 4, and Windy Harbour, also 4. But that really is about it. 22 to 1. Off to Mount Barker this afternoon, just before the news at 1. Tracy Kilner going through the yarding and the prices for you. And the state government appears to be backing away from plans to fix a major water resource in the southwest. I'm talking about Wellington Dam. It's about three hours south of Perth and it's the state's biggest surface water resource aside from the Ord River scheme. But it's been plagued by high salt levels, so the water is now virtually unusable for intensive agriculture. A couple of years ago, a plan was launched to divert salty inflows and treat the water in the dam. The aim was to provide billions of extra litres of fresh water for irrigators in the Mile Up area, and this plan was backed by state and federal government funding. But Regional Development Minister Alana McTiernan is now questioning whether the project can go ahead, partly due to complexities associated with our coal industry. Look, it has many, many benefits. It's a very complex project that involves being able to line up a huge range of commercial agreements and some of these are proving very, very difficult to land. Much of that is because of the, you know, the very difficult circumstances that the coal industry finds itself in. Last I read, there was about $37 million of state government money that had been pledged to this project. Is that still on the table? Right now, yeah, the money is still there in the budget, but obviously, we um, have to look at whether or not this project is going to be deliverable. It does require there being uh, agreements put in place with both Griffin Coal and Premier Coal, and both of these companies are going through uh, some very challenging and complex commercial arrangements. You said the project wasn't able to proceed until it has you know, these commercial arrangements in place. What particularly are those arrangements? What are the agreements that need to be struck? Some of the agreements, and I think the critical ones, is that there needs to be an agreement with Griffin Coal about access to Z-Pit and to mine dewatering. And whilst local management has been cooperative, Really, the organisation has not been able to reach an agreement because I think of the complex commercial circumstances. Um, And secondly, there needs to be an agreement with Premier Coal um, for mine dewatering water. And again, that has not been forthcoming. And again, these, I think, are, are largely because of the 
complex and challenging circumstances um, which these internationally owned coal companies find themselves. The advice that we're getting is that the likelihood of those companies being able to enter into binding agreements in relation to these matters is limited. So the advice that we're getting is that it is unlikely that the companies are going to be in a position to approve these agreements any time in the near future. Is the state government, through its state agreements with those companies, able to intervene in any way, able to facilitate agreements being struck? No, and it's not that we're not facilitating it. Whilst from time to time that might be suggested, I'm confident that is not the case, that these companies are in very complex commercial positions which really are preventing them from being able to make these decisions. And so the Collywater Project cannot proceed without getting access to the mine voids owned by those companies and managed by those companies or their mine dewatering. Is that the bottom line? That is absolutely correct. So, you know, at the heart of the scheme was this complex arrangement about taking mine dewater, uh, desalinating this, using Z-Pit as as a water storage point. Now, they have not been able to secure those agreements from those companies. So we are talking with Collingwater about how we might take this forward. But the money is still there. We want to invest that money. It's been suggested that the state government is no longer supportive of the Collingwater project and is in fact quietly walking away from it. Is that true? No, we've we've wanted the project to go ahead we've entered into a terms of agreement where there were certain preconditions. But you get to a point where these preconditions aren't being met and you have to ask yourself, are we doing the best thing by the farming community by keeping this money allocated in a treasury account or are we actually better to be spending it on something that we are confident can be delivered? State Regional Development Minister Alana McTiernan. On the country hour, 17 to 1. Steve Thomas is the Shadow Regional Development Minister and he thinks the state government has had long enough to overcome these hurdles. I think, sadly, that this is another failed project delivery from Alana McTiernan and the Labor Party in regional Western Australia. This was a critically important project. It involved $140 million of funding from the Commonwealth, added to $37 million from the state and $169 million from local proponents. It was going to produce a massive outcome in terms of production and jobs in regional Western Australia around Mile Up, Wellington and Collie. And it is an absolute crying shame that this project is not steaming ahead. The Minister has cited the complexity of the Collie Coalfields uh, as a, a real impediment to the project going ahead. Does she have a fair point there? Look, she's had over two years now to work out these issues. It was back in April 2018 that Alana McTiernan put out a media release welcoming the federal funding and committing to go ahead with this project. Now, two years and four months later, it basically appears to have stalled. And I think she's had adequate time to get those deals 
struck. I mean, it's not as if Collie has been flying ahead in different directions. Collie is a town that needs investment and needs support. Agriculture in Mileup needs support, needs investment, and the agricultural industry generally is under underpinning the state's economy in this COVID period. Uh, the region needs those jobs. So there is no excuse, in my view, for Alana McTiernan not having delivered this project, given the time frame that she's had. So where to now, do you think, for Collie Water? I mean, is the project able to proceed without the state standing behind it? Well, the project absolutely requires the state to stand firmly behind it. And I would be devastated on behalf of both the agricultural industry and the people in that region if Alana McTiernan abandoned ship now. It is critical that the state stays on board and continues to try and help the negotiations and bring this project forward. Shadow Regional Development Minister Steve Thomas, who is the South West Liberal MLC, speaking to Daniel Mercer. Quarter to one. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Radio WA. Western Australia's dairy farmers might benefit from China's decision to impose an 80% tariff on Australian barley. Basildon-based dairy consultant Steve Hosson told Jessica Hayes he thinks some of that barley could end up as livestock feed. Still early to tell, Jess, because the grain obviously needs to get to harvest and be harvested, but we've got a bit of a forward indication of what the prices are likely to be. And before that political kerfuffle, feed barley was looking like it was going to be about $300 a tonne. And it dropped to 40, and I personally expected it to bounce a bit, but it hasn't. It's been running at about 240, so from 300 to 240, and we have a fair bit of grain in dairy rations. Not that much barley, but we have the ability to swap from other cereals to barley to take advantage of the lower price. People are always reluctant just to sort of dance on someone else's bad position, but I suspect quietly. They're thinking, well, if this knocks 60 or $70 a tonne off barley, it will knock our feed bill down by about two to three cents a litre, which doesn't sound like much, but for the average farmer, it's $50,000. So, yeah, it, can, it will be significant if it stays that way. I mean, uh, $50,000 for a small to medium enterprise is obviously a lot of money when the margins are already thin as it is in a game like dairy. Absolutely. No one, no one will bemoan it. When the the first harvest comes, they'll obviously try to collect some themselves and they'll expect their grain suppliers to design rations that give them a benefit and not continue to lift the prices, but there'll be a lot of pressure on the feed suppliers to take advantage of it. And it's necessary because the margins have been very tight and if an opportunity comes along, we want it. Yeah, I guess you've got to take that. I mean, as you say, not to dance on the graves of people who are having a a difficult time, but this is a rare opportunity for an industry that's having a pretty tough time. Well, yeah, I don't know how tough a time it's having, but uh, but I don't really want to comment on that. But you could simply use the argument that if we are going to swap away from other cereals and swap towards barley, and you're looking at from purely a barley economics point of view, we are creating more demand for barley than there would otherwise be there. So we are putting a little bit of upward price pressure. Not much because we're not a big buyer, but we're allowing the market to work the way it should work. When something is cheap, you take cheaper, you take advantage of it. And when it's dear, you find a way of trying to run away from it. So we're probably helping to stabilise the barley market 
but it ain't much fun. It can't be much fun seeing your price fall from 300 to 240. Now, looking at the wheat price, it's sitting at around 300 bucks a ton. What does that mean in terms of outcomes for for dairy farmers, um, given that high energy value of wheat compared to barley? That's right, Jess. Most farmers, if wheat and barley were an equal price, they would prefer to have wheat in there, greater digestibility in it, so they'd prefer it. They have to be a bit more careful because it's it's a hotter ration and can cause animal problems. But if wheat's a little bit lower and barley's a lot lower, both components will want to try it. It will stay in anyone's ration and it will lower the cost of your summer feeding and the feeding for the rest of the year uh, until 2021 comes along. And bring it on soon, please, Jess. Uh, can't wait to see the end of this year. Now, <laughs> it's been a bugger of a thing, hasn't it? It has. 300 bucks a tonne for wheat. That's a bit of a drop-off from the prices seen earlier this year. When we talk about dollar value on savings for dairy producers, what could that lower wheat price mean? Oh, well, it's all a bit complex. So if one falls and the other doesn't fall, it doesn't matter because you can swap a bit. Broadly, if it holds the way it's holding, it'll take, it'll it'll probably be dollars $60,000 to the budget improvement for a $2.5 million producer. But we're speculating. It's still six months into the future. The world has to hold this way till the end and what's this I don't want to count my chickens until they're hatched or whatever however that saying goes and I think it might be appropriate in this case. That is WA based dairy industry consultant Steve Hosson talking about why that dip in barley prices could just be a window of opportunity for dairy producers. This is the Country Hour. It's 10 to 1. News for you at 1. Just before the news, you're off to Mount Barker and Tracy Kilner will have a wrap of the yarding and prices at the Mount Barker cattle market. First, though, if you or someone you know has spent some time in self-isolation this year because of COVID, you might just be able to relate to this story a little bit anyway. A top-end station hand has shared his experience or what could be classed as ultimate isolation by spending 15 weeks on a Northern Territory cattle station without seeing another person. Ricky Wilson's bizarre wet season included a tropical cyclone, a special friendship with an emu and a medical emergency brought on by a caterpillar. John Daly sat down with Ricky to hear his story of ultimate ISO. I don't think you could get more Australian than sitting on a dunny mid-cyclo. you got to go, you got to go. I'm living the dream. That's Ricky Wilson, and he's a pretty unique kind of bloke. The 33-year-old moved from Victoria to an Indigenous-owned station on the Gulf of Carpentaria, 1,000 kilometres southeast of Darwin, late last year. And the wet season that ensued was pretty interesting. But you got to go, you got to go. Spent the whole wet season out here by myself, looking after the joint. I went 15 weeks without seeing another human. I don't think many people could handle it. I've been metres from crocodiles, I've been metres from buffalo... I've been in cyclone, yeah, been metres from lightning, hitting the ground. It's um, just an experience um, like no other. I don't think you'd find it anywhere else in the world. Uh, it was just me, all the animals and Mother Nature. Mother Nature, she puts on a show. Paint a picture in the wet season how isolated this is. Isolated. So you've got 
I don't know how many rivers on the way out here from town. There's probably seven rivers, and they all swell during the wet season. You cannot get here to and from by car. You have to either helicopter or a boat, and it's a long way by boat. You notice a lot more stuff when you're by yourself. You got plenty of time to look around and have a look about. You just notice so many different things when you actually sit there and think about and look at things like that you never noticed before. What kind of things did you notice? Oh, just different bugs and insects, frogs, lizards, you name it, everything. There's just so much wildlife here, it's um, entertain anyone. While Ricky was minding the place, he also got a visit from tropical cyclone Esther in February. And he captured the whole experience on his phone. Nothing more Australian than eating a Vegemite sandwich in a cyclone. He just smiled and gave me a Vegemite sandwich. Yeah, yeah, I was, in, I was out and amongst it. I was um, videoing different parts of the cyclone. Yeah, a lot of rain. Yeah, a lot of wind. As, uh, I've never seen or been in a cyclone before. It's yeah, just something new. And um, while the chance is there, I just thought I'd be out and amongst it. Like, you've got to live, I reckon. You've got to live life to the fullest. I didn't get lonely at all. Like, you realise you are who you are. You don't have to impress anyone. You don't have to... You don't have to worry about what you wear, what you... You know, I just ate when I was hungry and slept when I was tired. felt amazing. Like, the soul was singing. The soul. Did you have any challenges? Did you have any rough trials? I pulled out a heap of weeds, and um, I didn't know about these itchy grubs that leave their hairs all over them and I pulled out a couple of tonne of weeds for the day and, but I must have just rubbed all caterpillar hairs all over me and I just ended up with a rash head to toe yeah except for me face and me jocks jock area um, come up with a few different remedies that I've heard over the years to try and get rid of it like what? I um, squashed up velvet soap and sugar and butter and mix it all together and just put it on me like a paste and then that worked for a little bit and I just slept in a tried to sweat it out with tracksuit pants and a hoodie but it didn't quite work so I found a wheelie bin and I filled it up with hot water and salt and hopped in that and soaked for a while <laughs> you soaked yourself yeah, in a wheelie bin I just got that used to being itchy and I knew there was nothing I could do about it so it was just mind over matter I think you know that's how I got through that. (laughs) Well did you have to get any help? It was near the end of the wet season and I was really low on food so I ended up getting a helicopter to come and get me and I went to the clinic and yeah restocked and then come back out. Now Ricky reckons he didn't get lonely and he actually struck up a pretty special friendship with the local emu. Talking about this virus, emu? Bloody world's going crazy, isn't it, mate? Stay home, stay in the nest. Donus here got a pet emu and he, when he he woke me up most mornings, he'd walk around me room going, "Mm, mm," making these noises and I'd get out and there he is, waiting to say good day for the morning. You get that bread I left you this morning? Eh? Do you reckon it takes a tough person to be able to spend that much time by themselves? Not really. I think everyone should spend time out in the wilderness for a period of time. It would help a lot of people with mental health problems or different things going on in their life. 
I'd do it again. I'd do it tomorrow. <laughs> like it's just amazing. Like you, yeah. Even just thinking about it, it makes me happy. <laughs> like it's just uh, one yeah. of them things. Holy dooly! I thought it laid me washing on the line. Woohoo! Well, lucky he had his phone there, had reception, and could take all those selfies and little videos. Top end station hand Ricky Wilson sharing that uh, bizarre story of the wet season isolation with John Daly. And if you want to see what Ricky looks like and check out some of those quirky videos he made while he was in isolation, you can have a look at John's story. It's um, a link for you there on the ABC Rural Facebook page. And uh, yeah, those great little videos of him eating the Vegemite sandwich during the cyclone and his friend the emu that came up to say hi every morning. Check it out on the ABC Rural Facebook page. Three minutes to one. Hello, I'm Thomas Ariti. Join me for the world today. The federal government cracks down on Chinese involvement in universities, industry and infrastructure. So what does this mean for the economy and how might Beijing respond? And more riots in Wisconsin after the police shoot an African-American man seven times. But Jacob Blake has admitted he was reaching for a knife at the time. Donald Trump's weighed in as the political fallout goes viral. That's coming up on the world today this afternoon. Hope you can join me. It is two and a half minutes to one to the markets now and the results of the cattle market at Mount Barker today. Tracy Kilner's at the sale yards now. Hi Belinda. Our numbers were down today. We only had 362 head, but we did have a dispersal sale, so I'll go through that as well. Young cattle sold to increase demand with the lightweight weaner steers selling to a top of 458 cents while the heifers topped at 382 cents a kilo. Heavy cows eased 6 cents selling to 274 cents while a heavy bull sold to a high of 276 cents a kilo. The highlight of the sale was the dispersal of 60 cow and calf units selling from $1,700 to $2,150 per unit. Nine mated Angus heifers returned $1,650 a head and two mature bulls made $3,800 and $1,800 respectively. Grown steers weighing between 400 and 500 kilos made $340 to $358 cents a kilo. Grown heifers weighing over 540 kilos eased 12 cents to sell for $224 to $300 cents, while the lighter under 540 kilo heifers sold for $296 cents a kilo. Yielding steers weighing over 400 kilos made 348 to 372 cents and the lighter weight sold from 352 to 396 cents to average 388 cents a kilo. Yielding heifers returned 292 to 364 cents to average 339 cents. Weaner steers weighing between 280 and 330 kilos sold for 406 to 442 cents while the lighter weights made from 408 to 458 cents at an average of 433 cents a kilo. Weaner heifers sold from 342 to 382 cents a kilo. Heavy prime cows eased 6 cents on demand, returning 238 to 266 cents. Medium weight cows sold from 240 to 274 cents to gain 5 cents. Boner cows sold for 220 cents and stores made from 120 to 198 cents depending on quality. Heavy bulls sold for 250 to 276 cents, medium weight bulls 244 to 260 cents, while the lightweight bulls sold for 278 cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for going through those details. That wraps up the livestock markets for this week. Talk to you tomorrow. Time for the news, one o'clock. 
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.